Good to be back. My name is Jesse Romero. I just came back from uh, Ohio. I was also in uh, Illinois last week. So good to be back behind this microphone here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. My partner Terry Barber is doing some apostolic work out in the field. Uh, welcome to the Terry and Jesse show. We invite you to this holy hour of power. I promise you that this hour is not going to be low energy Catholic radio. I'm a Catholic with a PhD in common sense. We engage the culture of death in this program with prayer, fasting, and full contact Catholicism. Our program is not right versus left, it is right versus wrong. And this is where Catholicism and culture intersect. Today I want to talk about the situation that's brewing in America or in our world. It looks like we are moving towards Aldix Huxley's A Brave New World. How should Christians respond in these dark and distressing times to the brave new world being brought into our very present uh, day by the globalist? I also want to talk about solutions. What must we do as Catholics? I'm going to go do a deep dive into the five first Saturdays. The Pope and the bishops have already done what they're going to do. Whether God accepts it, whether it's too late, we don't know. Uh, God will make those determinations. But Russia has been consecrated to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, what do we have to do? We have to do our parts. And I'll talk about that in the last segment. The, uh, <clears throat> what lay Catholics must do, what are the five first Saturdays? Let me pray real quick right now for the situation across, across the world, Ukraine and Russia. Name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Immaculate Heart of Mary, Holy Mother of God and our most tender Mother, look down upon the distress in which the church and all humanity finds itself due to the spread of godlessness, materialism, and the persecution of the Catholic faith. Errors of which you warned in Fatima. You are the mediatrix of all graces. Obtain for us the grace that all the bishops of the world in union with the Pope may consecrate Russia and Ukraine to your Immaculate Heart. By this consecration, we hope, as you told us in Fatima, that at, the, that at the time appointed by God, Russia will be converted and mankind will be granted an era of peace. We hope that this consecration honored you. And we hope that the triumph of your Immaculate Heart will soon draw near and the church will be authentically renewed in the splendor of the purity of the Catholic faith, the sacredness of the liturgy, and the holiness of the Christian life. O Queen of the Holy Rosary and our most tender mother, turn your merciful eyes towards the Pope and the bishops and each of us and graciously hear our fervent and trusting prayer. St. Joseph, patron saint of workers, families, homes, and a happy death, terror of demons, head of the family, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Today's gospel, soul food. John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47 at Holy Mass in the Novus Ordo Messe calendar. If I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is not true, but there is another who testifies on my behalf, and I know that the testimony he gives on my behalf is true. You sent emissaries to John, and he testified to the truth. I do not accept human testimony, but I say this, so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and for a while you were content to rejoice in his light. But I have testimony greater than John the Baptist. The works that the Father gave me to accomplish, these works that I perform, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. Moreover, the Father who has sent me testified on my behalf, but you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, and you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life through them. Even they testify on my behalf, but you do not want to come to me to have life. I do not accept human praise, moreover. I, I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I came in the name of my Father, but you do not accept me. Yet if another comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe when you accept the praise from one another and do not seek praise that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who will accuse you is Moses, in whom you have placed your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would, have, you would have believed me, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We know our Lord Jesus Christ. He's having a running gun battle with the, with the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They deny his claims. They reject his claims. So what's going on here From in today's gospel from verses 31, John chapter 5 through 47? <clears throat> There's a Jewish legal tradition that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they knew that according to Jewish tradition, when somebody made a claim in court, it required two or three witnesses to sustain a claim in a court of law. So, And this is from Deuteronomy 9.15, the law. Jesus is telling the establishment Jews, the oligarchy, that he has a list, way more than two or three witnesses as required by Deuteronomy 19.15. He has a list of witnesses beyond the required number. Who claims that he's the Messiah? Witness number one, John the Baptist. How can he prove he's the Messiah? Witness number two, his miracles. Who testifies that he's the Messiah, Son of God? Number three, God the Father. Witness number four, that testifies that he's the Messiah and the Son of God? The Scriptures. And witness number five, Moses. Jesus is appealing to the Jewish establishment, the Jewish leaders, that he has five witnesses that bear witness to his divine authority and his mission. And the Bible also calls John the Baptist a burning and a shining lamp. That's exactly what the ministry of John the Baptist was all about. He was to light the way up for Israel to see and accept Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Very interesting. Elijah is similarly depicted as a fiery torch in Sirach chapter 48, verse 1. And our Lord Jesus Christ ends his testimony 
by saying, guess what, guys? Moses wrote about me. Yep. Our Lord Jesus Christ follows the Jewish tradition that Moses authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And Moses described the Messiah as a Redeemer. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium. Moses also describes the Messiah as a universal king in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. And Moses also describes the Messiah as a prophet like himself in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. Let me also make some comments about the first reading today. It's from the book of Exodus, where it says, But Moses implored the Lord, his God, saying, Why, O Lord, should your wrath blaze against your own people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with such great power and so strong a hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent he brought them out, that he might kill them in the mountains and, and exterminate them from the face of the earth? Let your blazing wrath die down. Relent in punishing your people. The word relent means Moses is telling God, Relent means have mercy on us. Show mercy on us. That's what it means to relent. It says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and how you swore to them by your own self, saying, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and all this land that I promise I will give your descendants as a perpetual inheritance. <clears throat> so the Lord relented in the punishment he had threatened to inflict on his people Israel, the word of the Lord. So notice, Moses appeals to some Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had been dead for almost a thousand years. And he's saying, Lord, you promised these Old Testament saints, our fathers, that you would make our nation great and you would, and, and that you would give us uh, uh, numerous descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so Moses appealed to the communion of saints of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to their faith, and the merits of their prayers. And so it says, So the Lord God relented in the punishment He had threatened to inflict on His people. The Lord God relented. It doesn't mean that God repented. God has no need of repentance. That word, God relented, it simply means that God chose to show, to, to show mercy. That's what the word means. The Lord relented. In other words, Moses shares with God not to punish Israel because of their idolatry, because of the faith of their Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it simply means that God changed the course of his action. God chose mercy. That's what that means. It means that God was going to do one thing, and then another thing happened. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. Up next, I'm going to talk about a brave new world. Is it here? I think so. Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. St. Joseph, terror demons, pray for us. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Huxley's Brave New World 
That's the title of a book, Brave New World. It's a novel written by Eldus, Eldux Huxley. Guess what? We may be here. So how should people of faith, how should Christians respond to in these dark and distressing times? The families being dismantled, monogamy is reviled, and promiscuity seems to be the norm. Parents are being canceled by the public schools. The government indoctrinates and raises our children and keeps the population subdued through widespread state-sanctioned drug use, medical marijuana, and many other things. Reproduction has moved to the laboratory. New generations are, guess what, genetically engineered into varying social classes and industrially grown. It might be a plot of a dystopian novel, but in the nearly 100 years since the publication of the book Brave New World, the details of Eldux Huxley's dystopia have itched their way out of the realm of science fiction and into our headlines. While this description might appear to resemble a dystopian warning more than an accurate description of the society we inhabit today, recent developments in medical research and technology have shocking implications. The science fiction of large-scale human manufacturing is a theoretical and potentially imminent possibility. As to the objections that sheer repugnance at the idea of laboratory-grown children will be enough to deter any impetus in that direction, consider the ways in which the fertility industry has already reshaped our ideas of human reproduction. Big tech and other corporations encourage women to freeze their eggs, putting motherhood on ice. This is a move endorsed by the fertility industry on whom this choice renders them dependent. And so women worldwide are being used as human incubators. The bonds and significance of gestational motherhood reduced the functions of capitalism or even erased. But despite exorbitant costs, abysmal success rates, and heartbreaking cases gone wrong, IVF is growing in popularity. And with it comes widespread societal acceptance of the idea that the realm of the genesis of the new new human life is somewhere other than the loving embrace of a father and a mother. Meanwhile, scientific developments are converging to make lab-grown children a reality. Absolutely. Researchers continue to grow embryos in the lab for experimentation, even creating their own embryo-like entities. The International Society for Stem Cell Research recently relaxed its 14-day limit on the growth of human embryos, a limit researchers and worldwide legislation have recognized since 1979. And although federal funding for this type of research continues to be prohibited in the United States, research in the private sector is unregulated. Joe Biden's reversal of the Trump-era ban on fetal tissue research in early 2021 has widespread implications as the medical interventions develop 
by means of this research, expand beyond vaccines, people of faith will find themselves grappling with the dilemma of cooperation with evil in the treatment of eye diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and more. We are headed for a darker fate, more darker probably than Huxley's genetically tiered society in which the have-nots merely found themselves regulated to service positions. Because in today's scenario, the haves benefit not from the fruits of their, of their labor developed on the backs of the have-nots, but rather the haves benefit through the experimentation on the destruction of the bodies of the vulnerable and unwanted of our society. Of course, it was designed to mimic Eldrick Huxley's genetically tiered society. The scientific potential to create and manufacture a servant class is also within reach. Artificial wombs and in vitro gametogenesis, which is laboratory creation of eggs and sperms, are in experimental development right now. With the development of genetic editing technology, designer babies have already been born. And while it seems more likely that this technology will be employed by parents seeking to perfect their offspring than by governments seeking to restructure society, the fact is, is that all of these possibilities merit robust ethical discussion in advance of their implementation. Unfortunately, Whatever humility and caution may be exercised by the scientific community at large, there are always individuals whose ambition drives them to define progress solely in terms of achieving new developments with little regard for whether those developments truly signify advancement for the human community. The cultural groundwork has been laid and the scientific infrastructure has reached the experimental stages. How many generations can we possibly be from, from arguments that removing gestation from the, wombs, from the woman's womb is the safe and responsible option? But we are dismantling the family as well. The answer might be fewer than we'd like to believe. Our culture already denies the unique contributions of motherhood and fatherhood and the concept of the family as a community of love is being further undermined by the left. You have apps such as Modamily, excuse me, Modamily seeks to apply the matchmaking prowess of dating apps to help singles select parenting partners and creating alternative arrangements to the traditional family that suit the lifestyles of these individuals. Promiscuity has become a cultural value. Mainstream media questions even maligns monogamy, and women are, are being sold the lie that contraception is a human right. The implication being that sexual intercourse is a vital part of any adult woman's life, regardless of marital status. Elduck Huxley's book, Brave New World, he visions a world of promiscuity in which the state replaces the family in the raising and educating of children, guess what? That might not be too far off because the public school systems in many states 
have long touted sex education programs as necessary, even go so, going so far as to promote sexual activity within the curriculum by offering explicit descriptions of masturbation to fifth graders and passing out condoms to elementary age students. Yep. We're living in a state of indoctrination. After the COVID-19 lockdowns, the lockdowns provided parents with a deeper insight into what their children have been learning in classrooms for decades. Many parents have become concerned about the social values and principles being promoted by the public education system as the state exercises increasing control over the education of our children and continues to prohibit discussion of religiously based values, children in the public school system become recipients of an ideological indoctrination with values that, if not explicitly religious in themselves, reach levels of religious fervor flavored by the secular orthodoxy rather than theological principles. Meanwhile, parents find the realm of their authority shrinking as schools encourage social gender transition for students not only without parental permission, but intentionally withholding the information for the protection of their own children. Our already alarming levels of distraction and alienation from one another and complacency only stand to increase in the next several years with billions of dollars being poured into creation of the metaverse. What's the metaverse? These are headsets with glasses that have images and sounds and uh, they input things into your mind. The metaverse, which will undoubtedly support a new pornographic experience, not unlike, uh, not unlike Huxley's characterization of the feelies. This is looming on the horizon and, and it's fast spreading it's like the, the Soma-like drugs mentioned by Eldix Huxley. And we already have a Soma-like drug, CBD. And now we're going to have these, uh, these metaverse headsets. The potential for widespread cultural reflection on the kind of society we create by their implementation is already diminished. Under the crushing weight of each new distressing headline in the culture war, it can be difficult to, difficult to believe Christ's promise. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But with conservative and Christian voices being silenced and deplatformed and losing their livelihoods in a kind of postmodern martyrdom, that burden appears a growing crescendo. How are Christians to remain hopeful when the light at the end of our tunnel seems to grow more distant and ever dim? Does dystopia have anything to offer us or is it merely synonymous with doomsday? I want to talk about that next. We're going to be looking at the next, uh, looking at the last segment. We're going to get into the solutions to all of this. Absolutely. But there is definitely an alarming similarity today between the trends today to expose kids to sex and the 1932 novel Brave New World. The current trend to sexualize young children, that is to expose children to sexual issues as early as kindergarten, shares striking similarities 
to the dystopian novel Brave New World in which children are encouraged to start exploring sex at a young age. And in the latest example of the trend, a couple of YouTube filmmakers produced a video in which they described homosexuality to children as young as five and asked for their opinions on the subject. The filmmakers defended the video by stating that the raw opinions of children offered incredible, invaluable insight on our current society, but the youngest of these kids likely had no clue about the subject until it was explained by the producers. This is wicked. And in a similar incident, a Kansas father of a 13-year-old girl became infuriated after discovering a poster hanging up at her school which listed several recreational sex acts such as anal sex, for example. The Terry and Jesse Show. We'll be right back. I'm going to continue talking about The Brave New World, the book that was written in 1932 and what's happening today. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. A Brave New World by Aldrich Huxley. It's a novel written in 1932 by Penguin Books. The things that the author wrote, wrote, a, wrote about back in 1932 are happening today in 2022. Um, again, the book talks about the fact that our children will be sexualized, over-sexualized by the government, by the state. I talked to you about an incident that happened. A Kansas father of a 13-year-old girl became infuriated after discovering a poster hanging up at her school which listed several recreational sex acts, such as anal sex, for example. The father complained to the school the school's spokesperson referred to it as, quote, district-approved curriculum, close quote. Obviously, the father vehemently disagreed. The father said this has nothing to do with abstinence or sexual reproduction. But in Chicago, the schools even went further than that, than that by requiring mandatory sexual education in kindergarten classes. This is exactly... What Eldix Huxley said would happen in the future in this country. They would over-sexualize young people at a very early age. All these incidents that are happening around the country, they're, uh, when you compare them to the book The Brave New World that in 1932, this novel, which anticipates a future society that is centrally controlled by a powerful government through the use of various techniques, such as the sexualization of children. In the book, the central planners of uh, Brave New World, they encourage the populace to explore recreational sex starting from an early childhood, and the intent is to remove roman romantic relationships uh, and permanent marriages by cheapening sex in order to ensure that the citizens have complete allegiance to the state and not with each other through personal connections such as family and marriage and married life. This is this is further aided by the elimination 
of natural reproduction in favor of creating children in hatcheries and conditioning centers, according to the book, Brave New World, so that the world state or the one world government spoken of in 1932 can permanently limit the population to 2 billion people who are conditioned from birth to completely obey the government. It sounds like that's exactly what they're trying to do right now. The society described in the Brave New World as a world state in which war has been eliminated and where the first aim of the rulers is at all costs to keep their subjects from making trouble. Eldix Huxley wrote in his later essay, Brave New World Revisited, he said, quote, This they achieved by, among other methods, legalizing a degree of sexual freedom made possible by the abolition of the family. That practically guarantees the brave New Worlders against any form of destructive or creative emotional tension. In 1984, the lust for power is satisfied by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, the lust for power is inflicted by by inflicting a hardly less humiliating pleasure. Eldix Huxley also added that children are also highly susceptible to propaganda, a fact that really highlights the danger of exposing young kids to sex. They are ignorant of the world and its ways and therefore completely unsuspecting. Their critical faculties are are undeveloped. That's their prefrontal cortex is undeveloped. The youngest of them have not yet reached the age of reason and the older ones lack the experience on which their newfound rationality can effectively work. With all that said, it should be no surprise that the current sexualization of children in the United States of America is occurring mainly in the public educational system, which has a built-in bias towards large, powerful government. Additionally, families in real life are also being frowned upon, just like in Brave New World, such as the notable example in which MSNBC host Melissa Melissa Harris-Perry stated that your children are not yours, they belong to the community. Or as Hillary Clinton said, it takes a village to raise a child. MSNB host Melissa Harris-Perry said, we have to break through our private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families. She said, adding that kids belong to whole communities instead. Close quote. Now, although the current sexualization of children and the attacks on families in our society haven't quite reached the extremes presented in the novel, The Brave New World, the similarity, the similarities, excuse me, between these current trends and the novel Brave New World are alarming nonetheless. And it's not entirely far-fetched to believe that our future society will inch even further towards Huxley's complete prediction. One of the things that Eldix Huxley promoted in his book, The Brave New World, it's a it's a it's a dehumanized world. It's a place full of faceless human clones. It's a futuristic society that has an alarming effect on dehumanization. 
through the absence of spirituality and family and marriage, the obsession is with physical pleasure and the misuse of technology sounds like modern-day America. Each person is raised in a test tube rather than a mother's womb, and the government controls every stage of their development from embryo to maturity. Sounds like what the globalists want to do in America and around the world. In, in Huxley's book, Brave New World, people repeat, repeat phrases over and over while the children sleep. And the government can condition each person to accept his role in the world around him and to behave in what the government deems to be a safe manner. This creates a society full of human clones, completely devoid of personality. Every person is conditioned to love three things in the brave new world. They're conditioned to love Henry Ford, their idol. They're conditioned to love Soma, which is a wonder drug. And they're conditioned to love sex. Those three things. Soma is a type of recreational drug used in the novel Brave New World. It reminds me today of CBD. That's our new Soma or, or medical marijuana. So uh, Soma could be used to cure any sort of unhappiness within society according to the Brave New World. Just like we have today's false prophets saying that medical marijuana and CBD can cure all your pain and all your unhappiness. You also find in the movie, in the book, The Brave New World, and the novel, is that Henry Ford is worshipped as a god of technological innovation and development. And one of the things that makes the society in The Brave New World so different from ours is the lack of spirituality. Or should I say, it's not so different. Not so different from ours. The pleasure-seeking society pursues no spiritual experiences or joys, preferring carnal ones. There's a lack of religion in a brave new world. And rather than individual parents instilling their own values into their children, the state chooses how and what each child will learn. It sounds like modern-day America. The Brave New World, the book takes a look at human obsessions with pleasure, casual sex, is a popular way to spend your spare time, just like today, since everybody belongs to everyone else. Commitment is a non-issue. Sounds like modern America today. The novel deals also with the effects of advances in science and technology on human society. Technology is a crucial requirement in order for the society of the brave new world to form and take shape. Sounds like modern day America. Aldous Huxley's provides a strong warning against the misuse of science through factories that produce children, drugs that evoke pleasure, and conditioning that replaces families. Technology becomes a humanizing force. Guess what? The brave new world is here. And uh, <clears throat> while a dystopian outlook can serve as a useful warning. By the way, a the word dystopian means a person who imagines or foresees a state or society where there is great suffering or great injustice. That's what dystopian means. A society where there is great suffering or great injustice. We America right now is a dystopian society. 
And while a dystopian outlook can serve as a useful warning, the Christian imagination offers a far more lasting and valuable alternative. Dystopia paints a a fictitious picture of a world absent the things that make human life worth living, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, and that the reality that the kingdom is already here in us. The resurrection is not a pithy consolation prize or, or a distant symbol of hope to be realized only at the end of the Christian life. The reality that Christ has conquered death and lives in us as a present reality is here and now. Yeah, we can bemoan the signs of the times with heavy hearts, and there's much in our society to lament, but our call is to be an Easter people, as Pope John Paul II reminded us in the midst of the Cold War. Okay? The state of our world is not something to bemoan or escape from. It is the ground on which our own fiat takes form. The Almighty Creator of the universe has chosen and called each of us to serve Him in these particular circumstances. The world we live in is begging for our prophetic response. If there was ever a time to rise up and proclaim that Christ is King, this is the time. If not us, then who? If not now, then when? Christ reigns. Christ conquers and Christ commands. We'll be right back. We'll talk about the five first Fridays. That's the solution to the mess we're in. Stick around. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse Show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, Here's Terry and Jesse. We must do the five first Saturdays as Catholics. The Pope has done his part, and uh, only God will know if uh, it's if it was too, done too late or not. That's up to heaven to decide. <laughs> but last week we joined Pope Francis and all the bishops and millions of faithful around the world to consecrate our the Ukraine and Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So that was part one, the consecration and the reparation. By itself, this consecration is powerful, but it's not enough. Because Our Lady explicitly asked that once the Pope does his part, we must do ours if we want to bring about the triumph of her Immaculate Heart and an era of peace. Our part as lay people is the daily rosary and five first Saturdays of reparation. Uh, The question is, you are praying the rosary. I hope you are. And are you living the five first Saturdays of reparation? The second thing that was asked of us are the the apparition of the five first Saturdays. On December 10th, 1925, the mother of God appeared to Sister Lucia, the last visionary of Fatima. Also appearing with her and by her side, Elevated on a luminous cloud was the child Jesus. The Most Holy Virgin rested her hand on Lucia's shoulder, and as she did so, she showed her a heart encircled by thorns, which she was holding in her other hand. At the same time, the child said, Have compassion. Have compassion on the heart of your Most Holy Mother, covered with thorns with which 
ungrateful men pierce it at every moment and there is no one to make an act of reparation to remove them, close quote. Then the Most Holy Virgin said, quote, look at my daughter at my heart, surrounded with thorns with which ungrateful men pierce me at every moment by their blasphemies and ingratitude. You at least try to console me and announce in my name that I promise to assist at the moment of death with all the graces necessary for salvation. All those who are on the first Saturday of five consecutive months shall confess, receive Holy Communion, and recite five decades of the Rosary and keep me company for 15 minutes while meditating on the 15 mysteries of the Rosary with the intention of making reparation to me. Pope Benedict extended the window for confession from 20 days from before until 20 days after the first Saturday. But too few have answered the call. How long will you ignore the call of Our Lady? Here's, here's the third part of what we're supposed to be doing as lay Catholics. Remember, the Pope has done his part. We also have a part to play in this. We are also called to do our part. Number three. At first, Sister Lucia herself ignored Our Lady's request and did not make the message of the five first Saturdays known. Two months later, on February 5th, 15th, excuse me, 1926, Sister Lucia went outside to dump the trash in the dumpster behind the convent, where some months earlier she met a child whom she asked if he knew the Holy, if he knew the Hail Mary. And he said he did. But he made no attempt to say it, so she told him to learn it. On this day, she once again met the same child behind the convent. She asked him, Did you do as I told you and learn the prayer? Sister Lucia relates what happened next. The child turned to me and said, <clears throat> the, the child turned to me and said, And have you spread through the world what our Heavenly Mother requested of you? With that, he was transformed into the resplendent Lord Jesus Christ. Sister Lucia made her excuses to Jesus for not doing what Mary requested, to which Jesus responded, It is true, my daughter, that many souls begin the first Saturdays, but few finish them. And those who do complete them do so in order to receive the graces that are promised thereby. It would please me more if they did the five with fervor and with the intention of making reparation to the heart of your Heavenly Mother. My question... Are we living the five first Saturdays of reparation and spreading them? Or are we making excuses and just pointing our hands at the last seven popes? That's easy to do. It's easy to say, oh, the Pope should have done this. Oh, the Pope should have done that. Okay? That's easy to do. The question is, what are you doing Point number four. In 1930, Sister Lucia Fatima wrote a letter in which she explained that Jesus promised to grant religious freedom to all people under the domination of Russia when the Pope consecrated Russia to the heart of Mary. As a result of the consecration made by Pope St. John Paul II in 1984, by the way, where Russia was not mentioned, what happened? Well, there are still some effects 
on December 8th, 1991, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, all the countries under the former Soviet Union were set free and granted religious freedom, including Ukraine. Next, Jesus said to Lucia, the Holy Father must then promise that upon ending of this persecution of religion in Russia, he will approve and recommend the practice of the five first Saturdays. The time immediately following the granting of religious freedom in Russia was supposed to be the time when the, when the first Saturdays of reparation kicked in. But we have not practiced the first Saturdays and fear, hatred, and war have covered the earth as a result. For the consecration which Pope Francis made the other day to have its full effect and bring about an era of peace promised by Mary, we must do our part and carry out the five first Saturdays of reparation. Jesus told Sister Lucia that once she completed the five first Saturdays, she should continue in the place of all those who would not. And next, the next thing that we have to do as Catholics is mark your calendars April 2nd, which is on a Saturday. That's the next first Saturday. You should be thinking, okay, April 2nd is the next first Saturday. It will be my first Saturday. I'm going to start carrying out the Fatima message. So point number five, Sister Lucia took very seriously Our Lady's warning that another, another world war, famines and persecutions of the church would result if we did not make reparation for our sins. Sister Lucia believed that the Blessed Mother's promise that souls could be saved and wars and disasters averted if we would dedicate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary through the five first Saturdays of reparation. Well, in a letter, in a letter, Sister Lucia wrote, warning that another world war, famines and persecutions of the church would result if we did not make reparation for our sins. Sister Lucia believed that the Blessed Mother's promise that souls could be saved in wars and disasters averted if we would dedicate ourselves to the Immaculate Heart of Mary through the five first Saturdays of reparation. Again, don't go and point fingers at the last seven popes or at the bishops. We as lay Catholics have something to do as well. In a letter Sister Lucia wrote, she said, Our Lady promised to postpone the scourge of war if this devotion is spread and practiced. We see her putting off this chastisement in the measure that efforts are being made to spread it. But I'm afraid that we as lay Catholics are not doing all that we are able to do and that God in no way, is in no way satisfied. He may raise the arm of His mercy... That's possible, or he could let the world be ravaged by his punishment, which will be as never as never been or as never seen before. Horrible. Horrible. Peace or war, I'm gonna say it again. Peace or war depends on the five first Saturdays along with the consecration. 
So what is reparation? Reparation is we're called to do penance and sacrifice and to repair the damage that others have done. The Catechism tells us in paragraph 2487, every offense committed against justice, that is God, and committed against truth, which is God, entails the duty of reparation, even if its authors, even if its author has been forgiven. Close quote. This includes any offenses against another's reputation, especially God. And one of Roger's rules for rangers is don't ever lie. Don't ever lie. In order for us to defeat our Goliath, we must have purity in thought, word, and deed. Purity of thought, word, and deed. That's a wrap. My name is Jesse Romero. I see uh, Dr. Luis Sandoval. He's, uh, he's in the bullpen. He's warming up. He's warming up. He's throwing fastballs. So he'll be up next. Uh, you don't want to miss his program. Talk about uh, not only a guy that has a PhD in common sense, but he's a guy that has an earned PhD. And not only that, he's not like one of those skeptical doctors like, yeah, are there angels and demons? No. This man, this doctor knows that there are angels and demons because he's directly involved in the ministry of healing and liberation for the Diocese of Orange. Yet he comes, he comes to it from a perspective of faith. Hey, that's a wrap. Remember the words of St. Padre Pio, pray hope and don't worry, worry is useless. God is merciful and God will hear your prayer. Let's all participate in the five first Saturdays. Remember... Let's pray America great again. Pray America great again. God bless you. Keep the faith. See you next time. Same Christ time. Same Christ channel. We're out.